Thank you, Alan, and welcome. I'm Fred Paul, and you're watching ADH TV, which is thankfully not being broadcast live from the Jobs Summit in Canberra tonight. As I've been saying all week, the outcome of the Jobs Summit was decided by Anthony Albanese and his front bench before the election. They just needed a way to delay its announcement till after the ballot boxes had been safely folded away. And so it was that the tea and biscuits had barely been served at today's morning break before Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke predictably announced a suite of seven well-prepared policies he plans to implement, including providing, quote, stronger protections for workers against adverse action and all forms of discrimination and harassment, unquote. Whether he meant harassment of non-union contractors on building sites by CFMEU thugs, Burke wasn't saying. If he had, it would have been a rare moment of excitement from what was otherwise a dead set snooze fest. I can't guarantee we won't mention the job summit on the show tonight, but if we do, we'll try to give it the dismissive derision it deserves. And also, isn't it wonderful that we won't be forced to wear masks on domestic flights from September 9? No more sipping the same glass of wine for four hours or pretending to be asleep so the matronly Qantas stewardess can't harass you to put your face nappy back on. And National Cabinet has decided to alter the period of enforced isolation after a positive COVID resu result from seven days to five. Quote, this is a proportionate response at this point in the pandemic, unquote. The cabinet statement said. What it didn't say was that it was a proportionate response two years ago as well. But I suppose we should be grateful for what we get from the secretive national cabinet. I'll be saying more about that later. I have a cracking show for you tonight. We've got the unreasonably rational Queensland Senator Matt Canavan to talk about energy policy and, and the desperation for fuel in Europe. And I'll have my usual chat with Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Battleground about the topics of the week. Plus, I'll have another crack at the COVID madness and Woke Watch will have a swing at golf. Now let's get into it. Well, the extent of the lies from politicians, pharmaceutical companies, the mainstream media and big tech throughout the so-called COVID pandemic are now becoming blindingly clear. Unfortunately, few of the people who perpetrated those lies will be brought to account, nor will they pay the sort of price already incurred by ordinary people as a result. Businesses have been ruined. Kids have missed out on years of schooling that will be almost impossible to regain. People died after deferring medical procedures and widespread depression and loneliness led to an increase in suicides. Throughout it all, the elites who stood to make the most from the harsh, unprecedented pandemic response were coincidentally, coincidentally the same people who advocated for it. Media companies scored favourable treatment and lucrative advertising deals from governments in return for whipping up fear. Politicians gained approval from their frightened constituents by securing billions worth of vaccines and Big Pharma laughed all the way to the bank knowing that the mainstream media would never so much as question the efficacy of their vaccines. Amazon owner Jeff Bezos doubly benefited, benefited while his newspaper The Washington Post told readers to panic and stay at home. He watched the money roll in as people started buying everyday stuff from his online emporium instead his net worth increased by a staggering $86 billion 
during the first 18 months of the pandemic. This typified the cosy synergies of the pandemic that are now becoming clearer and clearer. They all have one thing in common. They benefited the elites at your expense. What makes this even more sinister is that the fear was almost entirely manufactured. From the moment the virus emerged, the World Health Organization said it was novel and therefore difficult to treat. But a report published by international research group Panda, otherwise known as, known as Pandemic Data and Analytics, published two months ago, says the virus was not novel at all. It was related to the SARS virus of 2003, for which treatments with 75% success rate were already available. But Panda said, quote, people fear what is novel and unknown, unquote. Of course they do. And that makes them vulnerable to manipulation. The next stage was to overstate how quickly the virus spread. For a couple of months from December 2020, the British government repeatedly tweeted around one in three people who have COVID-19 have no symptoms. Act like you've got it. Stay home. This reinforced the need for lockdowns. All it would take is for one person to unknowingly walk through a shopping centre to cause the equivalent of a massacre. But British mathematician Norman Fenton, the professor of risk information at Queen Mary University in London, says false positives from unreliable PCR tests inflated the infection rate. Using the British government's own data, he says the figure was closer to one in 19, not one in three. In other words, the virus wasn't so infectious that millions of people needed to stay home. As the number of people presenting to be tested increased, so too did the positive results, giving the impression that the pandemic was intensifying. It wasn't. It was just that more people were being tested. Politicians took advantage of these numbers to also inflate the fatality rate. The absurdity of this became apparent when a man who was fatally shot outside his home in Auckland, New Zealand in November last year, and subsequently tested positive for COVID, the, so the, ministry, the, the health ministry added him to the virus's frightening death toll. This added to the urgency for vaccines, which we now know were not only ineffective, they actually caused harm. The British government in June started quietly paying out lump sums of £120,000 to relatives of people killed by the vaccine. Rishi Sunak, the British Chancellor uh, throughout the pandemic, who is now competing to become the next Prime Minister of Britain, has sensed the change in the electorate's mood and suddenly started disowning his government's lockdown policies. He told The Spectator this week, quote, it was wrong to scare people like that, unquote. Scaring them was just the start of it, Rishi. Governments lied, people died. But at least he's come clean, even if, even if it is two years too late. Here in Australia, there are few signs of the truth ever coming out. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has not missed a chance to criticise his predecessor Scott Morrison for having secretly signed himself up to five ministerial portfolios at the start of the pandemic, a move that was entirely legal and which was barely exercised anyway. But Albo hasn't criticised Morrison's far worse contrivance of political power created in March 2020, the National Cabinet, 
which consists mostly of the Prime Minister and the State Premiers. This new body was where some of the most egregiously oppressive decisions in Australian history were made. People were locked up, borders were shut, vaccine mandates were created. When, Sen when Senator Rex Patrick won access to the National, National Cabinet's deliberations in August last year, the federal government blocked his freedom of information requests anyway. Albanese, who was then leader of the opposition, said at the time, quote, Mr. Morrison's obsession with secrecy has undermined the law that protects all Australians' right to know and, if left unchecked, threatens other fundamental rights, unquote. It's funny how winning an election changes your attitude to these things. Asked last month if he would end National Cabinet's secrecy rules, Albo, now the Prime Minister, said no. And he refused to explain why. Perhaps he's been told by his Labor Premier mates that National Cabinet's pandemic secrets are too damning. The public are rapidly waking up to the mismanagement. There are reports that Albanese will call a royal commission into the COVID response soon. And Victorian opposition leader Matthew Guy says he'll do likewise if he wins the state election in November. Eventually the truth will come out. But given the amount of hardship, the number of deaths and the national debt racked up, there is still relatively little urgency among our politicians to pursue those responsible and bring them to account. You don't need to wonder why. Well, golf was once described as a good walk in the park, ruined by frequent searches for a ball in long grass. But it's much more than that these days, just ask Peter Fitzsimons, the inconsistently opinionated newspaper columnist and leader of the very friendly and inclusive Australian Republican movement, has taken a swing at Australian golfer Cam Smith for signing with the rich breakaway LIV golf tour, which is backed by Saudi Arabian money. Fitzsimons said in his usual subtle way that the LIV tour was backed by, quote, blood money, unquote. Well, rugby league player Christian Welch of the Melbourne Storm leapt to Smith's defence, pointing out that if Smith was guilty of taking blood money, so too was Fitzsimons because he'd appeared in an Uber Eats advertisement. Uber Eats, you see, attracted 3.5 billion worth of investment from Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman when it was just a start-up. Welch said, quote, it's okay for you to profit, albeit indirectly, from the Saudi investment fund, but not a golfer, unquote. Perhaps Fitzy should stop and think before he tees off next time. But wait, there's more woke golf news. Apparently the sport is guilty of some kind of historical racism, according to an exhibition at St Andrews in Scotland, also known as the sport's spiritual home. The, the Telegraph in London reports that the exhibition describes the rubber used for golf balls was from Malaysia and part of the British Empire's, quote, colonial exploitation. The Telegraph went on, quote, some experts have said that harvesting the rubber for Western markets caused ecological damage, unquote. Well, someone call an intersectional academic 
What's worse, centuries-old ecological damage or modern blood money? I think the golf fans of the world deserve to know. Well, there are some interesting paradoxes about the Jobs Summit that started in Canberra today. Not least of which is, why hold a Jobs Summit at all when we have full employment? I walked past a cafe in Sydney yesterday that had a sign in the window that said, quote, please be patient, we're understaffed, unquote. Traditionally, this sign would have said, waiters and waitresses required, inquire within. But not these days because there just aren't enough workers to go around and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese thinks he knows why. He told the National Press Club this week that his predecessor should have extended the stay-at-home JobKeeper welfare payment to temporary visa holders. Because he didn't, 600,000 itinerant workers left the country and now there's no one left to wait at cafe tables. I'll ask my next guest, Queensland Senator Matt Canavan, in a second, what he thinks is the true purpose of the Jobs Summit and whether Australian taxpayers should have paid foreigners to stay here at the same time the government was locking Australians out. But first, there's an enormous opportunity for resource companies at the moment. Resource prices are at eye-watering levels at the moment. The price of gas in Europe is already at a record level and is tipped to hit 300 euros per megawatt hour by early next year, which is 10 times what it was just 18 months ago. And Australian company Woodside has just reported a six-fold increase in profits, thanks partly to Europeans desperate to find another source than Russia for gas. Should we be making more of this than we are? Let's ask Matt Canavan. Matt, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Fred. Matt, could we be de doing more to cash in on Europe's desperation for gas, coal, oil, and even uranium? Well, look, I, I wouldn't put it in those terms necessarily. Of course, uh, not against us making money, uh, selling our goods and services. But I think the primary reason we should be supplying more gas, coal, any other energy we can to Europe is to, to help them uh, protect them against uh, aggression from, from Russia. The, the key reason or the key uh, thing in, in Vladimir Putin's favour is the leverage he has over especially Western Europe because he supplies uh, a significant amount of their energy needs. Now, a few years ago when Donald Trump pointed this out uh, at the United Nations, there were lots of guffaws and, uh, and sort of this sort of dismissal of, 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 uh, of his warnings. Uh, well, the chickens have come home to roost now and it's a terrible winter looking ahead for Europe. And we could help. We could help as a country with all the oil and coal we've got, all the gas we've got. Uh, could help European countries actually have a little bit more energy uh, for their purposes and not have to rely so much on the dictatorial regimes like Vladimir Putin's. But the big thing holding us back is this red tape, this green tape that's imposed on new projects in this country. It makes it very hard to do anything. Yeah, I actually said that on the show last night, Matt. I mean, we actually have a moral duty to help Europe out because, I mean, a century ago, young Australians were sailing off to Europe to fight to defend Europe. Now all we need to do is sell them our resources so they don't freeze in the dark this winter. At I mean, record prices. At record <laughs> yeah, prices, yeah. at record yeah. prices. And money. Yeah. <laughs> but we're yeah. not doing it because oh, of the... Well, well, it's Go on. Well, it's right there for us, Fred, uh, the opportunities there. But we've had this new government uh, say no to a coal mine just north of where I am uh, at the moment. Uh, uh, we've had the uh, same environment minister, Tanya Plibersek, say no to fast-tracking gas projects uh, in western Queensland. And uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty about there, out there about what is 
uh, a potential, what can potentially be developed. When I was resources minister, we released 62 offshore acreages in one year uh, for oil and gas exploration. We do that every year. And uh, fortunately this year, the new government did do it. They did release the acreages, but that was down to just 10. Went from 62 uh, to 10 in the space of a few years. And that, that's a demand-driven release. So the fact that people aren't demanding as much area to explore in Australia really concerns me. And I think it's an indicator of uh, how Australia is no longer viewed as a sovereign risk-free country. Well, the, the, one of the least attractive places in Australia to invest at, for a resource company is Victoria because, you know, I mean, they've got a, a constitutional ban on fracking. They've only just recently uh, lifted the ban on conventional gas extraction. But uh, Dan Andrews hasn't exactly, um, uh, his phone hasn't been lit up with uh, applications from resource companies. Meanwhile, there's a shortfall in Victoria and some of the gas from your state has, has, to be, has had to be mm -hmm. diverted to Victoria. Now, th none of this makes sense, Matt. I mean, why should Queensland and, and, and companies that are extracting gas in Queensland be forced to pay for Victorian incompetence? Well, look, I, I do want to put our country first and uh, I do think Australian businesses deserve to have first crack at Australian gas. That's why when we were in government, we put in place a domestic security gas mechanism uh, that will allow that to happen. Uh, but but they're, they're the problem here for Victorian businesses is even if that gas does come from Queensland, it takes a lot, it costs a lot to transport the gas down south. It costs about $2 a gigajoule and typically priced have been about 8 or $10 a gigajoule uh, for users. So it's a significant cost of, the, of transport. And the reason we have so much, uh, we've traditionally had a very strong manufacturing industry in Victoria is because it's been close to our energy resources of the brown coal of Latrobe Valley and uh, then later the oil and gas of the Bass Strait. Now, the Victorian government's closing both of those industries down. It's closing down the brown coal fired power stations. And as you say, it's putting massive restrictions on gas development. That will mean, that will necessarily mean the manufacturing industries that were built on the back of that will no longer be there in the future in Victoria. It doesn't matter where we get, if we get gas from Queensland, from WA, uh, from the Middle East, uh, without having proximity to those energy resources, we'll lose those businesses because we have a choice as a country. We can either have cheap energy or we'll get cheap wages. Uh, if we don't have the cheap energy that our country's been built on, well then the, the high wages that we're used to and have become accustomed to, we won't be able to afford. Uh, and we're, 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 we're sort of on track at the moment to choose that cheap wages track, which is, to my mind, just nonsensical. We'll get to the wages in a minute when we talk about the job summit. But let's just stay on energy for a second, because Anthony Albanese and Chris Bowen seem determined to send us down the same path that Europe is already on, pursuing renewables and running down coal and gas. Matt, why can't they see that this will only end in, in catastrophe, which is already obvious from what's happening in Europe? Well, seemingly, Fred, it's because a 16-year-old Swedish schoolgirl has convinced them of the uh, wisdom of installing all of this uh, unreliable power. And, and look, because she has been so successful in, in, in her school strikes and persuasive arguments to do that, they've now made election commitments to invest in renewables and what have you. So unfortunately for us, they seem to be persisting, uh, even though all the evidence is pointing to uh, the, the, the futility of their energy policies. You're absolutely right to point out Europe and the situation there. Uh, but we, in some respects, have been going harder and faster than Europe. The last few years, we've been investing more per person in solar and wind than any European country, indeed about four times more uh, than Europe. And that's why we've got this situation here where over winter we couldn't guarantee our lights being on. And you might have seen this week that our energy regulators are warning 
that over the next three years, South Australia, then Victoria, then New South Wales are all facing blackouts unless we can invest in reliable power in the interim. And this is something I've been warning about for years. Uh, it's why I think we should continue to build coal and gas fired power stations. But we have an energy minister in Chris Bowen who's just closing his ears uh, and eyes um, to this, this evidence. And uh, that sort of see no evil, hear no evil uh, approach is only going to lead to disaster for us. Well, the viewers will never stop hearing it here on ADH TV, I can guarantee that. Now, the first cab off the renewables rank for Chris Bowen is offshore windmills. The, you know, they keep talking about all this new technology. These windmills, it's, it's ancient technology. Now, look, I calculated this week that to generate two gigawatts, which is what the government has said they want by 2040, they would need 130 windmills of the latest, you know, 15 megawatt variety, which are huge machines for a start. And they'd, they'd need to be spread out over an area of ocean, 21 kilometres long and seven kilometres wide. And then they're, they're talking 13 gigawatts by 2050, which, which would require six times that area. Matt, this is going to be, this is not only going to be ugly, it's going to be a navigation hazard. Well, Fred, do you remember when the uh, the greenies, the real greenies, used to care about the whales? Uh, do you remember that? <laughs> that was the, the big issue for them. Yeah. Uh, yet marine life now is, is a little bit further down on the pecking order for our modern-day environmentalists because this is an enormous industrial project uh, to be envisaged in our, in our oceans. And, look, I'm not a radical environmentalist. If wind power stacks up uh, and it can supply some power, I'm sure there's a reasonable way... Uh, we could build these sort of things even in our pristine oceans. But the haphazard, the, 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 the obsessive way that these projects are being pushed does concern me that there will be an impact on our environment. The, one of the biggest limitations of all renewable energy sources is the immense amount of land they have to take up, whether it's solar or whether it's onshore wind, and as you say, offshore wind, they all have to take up enormously more land uh, than coal and gas and certainly nuclear power stations have to do. And that means, guess what? They have a bigger footprint. You know, we talk, they talk about the carbon footprint. Well, this is an actual real footprint that these projects have on our natural environment. And uh, I do fear that we will, in trying to save one or deal with one environmental problem, we'll create a whole lot of worse ones that we aren't thinking about right now. Well, let's move to the Job Summit in Canberra today that started in Canberra today. The federal government plans to introduce, leg to legislate industry-wide wage negotiation. Now, this was widely known last week, long before the summit even began, which makes you wonder why they bothered with the summit in the first place. Matt, is this a job summit or is it an ACTU conference? Well, it's no doubt it's a union loving, but worse for the country and certainly for the participants there, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's more of a performance than it is uh, a conversation. Uh, clearly, the government has turned up to Canberra with... Uh, the, the laundry list of things that it wants to do, some of them being election promises, some of them just being, you know, the wet dreams of the union and labour movement. Uh, and it doesn't matter what's said uh, in Canberra the next few days, the, uh, the, the, the poor business uh, and community representatives are really just props uh, for the Labor Party to pursue their own political agenda. Uh, now, so that's, it's not very interesting, I think, to, to me certainly, and I think to most Australians, because of that, it's all been preordained. And more to the point, your editorial hit this nail on the head. It's actually not meeting. It's sort of a, a, a summit now um, in search of a problem. Uh, we don't have a jobs problem, as you said. Uh, we do have a productivity problem. We do have a real wages problem. 
And it'd be much better if uh, the government could focus on those issues first. And one way to bring down wages is to bring down the cost of energy, right? That's, oh, sorry, keep well, up they wages. Up, they yeah. bring up wages. Yeah, bring, yeah, up, bring yeah. up wages if we bring down the cost of energy. But you're absolutely right. I mean, productivity determines wages. And I was only having a look this week. Uh, we've had a shocking record of productivity in electricity generation. In the last 20 years, our productivity in electricity generation is down 30%. Uh, and it's a, it's a big reason why our productivity overall has fallen in the last 10 years. And so if we want to get wages up, we've got to do more with less. And uh, creating cheaper energy is the best way to do that. Do we need to bring? Do we need to pay to bring in more workers, Matt? As uh, as Albo is suggesting. Well, look, we all, we clearly do need some more migrants. Uh, we we had obviously a closed door during COVID the last two years, and that's causing a lot of issues for farmers and meatworks and things like that. We we, we have to bring some people in. We're a growing country, but I, I hope we don't resort back to the lazy approach of just opening the floodgates here. Uh, and going to the elevated levels of migration we had a few years ago. A lot of big businesses like that because they want the cheap labour. A lot of rich people like that because they want the cheap nannies to look after their kids. But we do need to make sure that Australians have a job and that Australian wages are there uh, at a level uh, that can maintain a family, can allow them to buy their own home and get their own little bit of independence in this country. So a proper balance has to be struck. Uh, and I hope uh, the new Prime Minister avoids this sort of uh, knee-jerk reaction from some of the business community just... Let us import a whole lot of cheap labour because uh, that lets us do lets us make more profits. Yeah, it's about profits and not really what uh, what's good for the country. Matt Canavan, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much, Fred. That's Queensland LNP Senator Matt Canavan. Well, you might not be surprised to learn that what looked like an optical illusion when our 5'10 Prime Minister Anthony Albanese stood next to the 7'1 American basketballer Shaquille O'Neal this week wasn't an optical illusion at all. Albo seemed to shrink before our very eyes, and he did. O'Neill had been enlisted by Albo to help him sell a fundamental change to the Constitution to include an Indigenous voice to Parliament. The voice would essentially create two kinds of Australian citizens and commit the democratically elected parliament to an external chamber with unspecified authority. The proposal was controversial enough even before Albo enlisted O'Neill to the cause. But according to a poll conducted this week, 69% of Australians think the stunt backfired. Or to put it another way, 69% thought it wouldn't change anyone's mind. Surprise, surprise. The same polling, conducted by Compass and revealed exclusively here on ADH, also found that 70% of Australians don't think Albo can deliver on his promise to reduce power bills by $275 a year. It also found that 80% don't want the government to direct super funds into what sort of projects they can invest in, which was flagged by uh, Treasurer Jim Chalmers recently. These don't bode well for the new government. To discuss these and other issues, issues of the week, let's bring in Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Battleground, the Friday evening show here on ADH TV. Nick, welcome back to the show. Hi, Fred. Good to be here. Nick, I saw one ABC presenter tweeting during the week that Young, to young people in Australia, O'Neill is a, quote, God. <laughs> the implication was that Albanese's stunt would go down well with the kids. 
I d but I doubt that's the case. When oldies try this kind of stuff, it always backfires on them, mate. Do you think this is how it wound up for Albo? It was Shaquille O'Neal, or, or Shaq, as Albo calls him. Shaq O'Neal. I mean, there's lots to admire about him. Apparently, he's a very good basketball player. He has a lot of good, other good qualities. But I tell you, the, the least interesting thing about him for me is the colour of his skin. But that seems to be the only connection between this American basketball player and, you know, the, the, the cause of, you know, furthering the interests of Indigenous people in Australia. That seems to be the connection. And uh, the polling's pretty comprehensive, isn't it, Fred? I mean, 70% say this is not helping. Only 30% do. And we've done a fair bit of this kind of polling over the years. And, and what we found is that there'll always be a certain percentage of people will say, oh, it's Labor, that must be right. Or it's Liberal, it must be right. So there's always that sort of, you know, hardcore, rusted on bit. So 70-30 is pretty much 100% in my book. You know, the, the, overall, the Australian people thought this was a total misfire. Yeah, you're right. I mean, with these kind of issues, these kind of social issues, this should be, you know, uh, home turf. Should be a home yeah. game for Albo. <laughs> he should be slam dunking this one. <laughs> slam dunk, uh, I love from, it. From, outside, from three points, you know, from downtown. But uh, it's really backfired on yeah. him, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not the slam dunk he expected. And, and, the, and the, the energy, uh, I don't, we, we'll get on and talk about the, 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 whether people believe his uh, promise to reduce energy bills by $275 is real or not. Similar numbers, very yeah, similar yeah. numbers. But let's just talk about this, you know, the, the voice to parliament, because, I mean, really, if he wanted street cred, he'd enlist Jacinta Nampajinpa Price, wouldn't he? If he could. Yeah, if he could. <laughs> I'm not sure she'd be exactly lockstep behind him on this question of the voice, <laughs> uh, you know. But that, that I mean, that, he should be looking, obviously, to Indigenous voices. I don't know, Neil... Uh, Noel Pearson, I mean, you know, there are many uh, really strong advocates uh, and, and, and noble advocates for the rights and of Indigenous people in this country, but he didn't choose to enlist any of them. I'm not quite sure why. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to suggest that Jacinta would, su would support the voice, of course. <laughs> it's just that, you know, it should ring alarm bells to him that someone like Jacinta wouldn't. I mean, that's the point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's got a real problem here, hasn't he, right? Yeah. You know, I, speaking as a, 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 an elderly white guy from the inner city suburbs of Sydney, I disagree with this you know, Indigenous woman who actually lives and comes from remote communities in Australia. You know, she comes from the Simpson Desert. I, mm. I disagree with her. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible, isn't it, to for him to stand up and say, well, I think that Jacinta Price doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> and they're wrestling with this right now. You can see they're wrestling with how do you counter this, uh, obviously, you know, Andrew Bolt, disagrees with it or you disagree or I do, that's, that's easy for them. But if a woman who's lived the life and, and knows those communities intimately, grew up in them, says, I've got my issues about the voice, then it's very hard for him to gainsay that, I would have thought. That's, that's very well said, actually. And, and just to continue on this point, just for another a minute, the, he personally is hanging like the first year of his term in as prime minister on this. I mean, you know, give Chris Bowen renewables and and 
and Jim Chalmers the budget and whatever, but this is his baby and it's going, it's, it's not going to work well. It, his, his, his authority in the electorate is going to suffer a lot, don't you think? Well, yeah, let's just say, I mean, it's got some way to play out. We haven't got, we don't even know the date of the referendum or even the question. So there's a lot of water to flow under the bridge first. But let's say he's, if this is going to be his first term legacy, he's, He's decided on a hard one, very difficult one to get over the line, I would have thought. OK, let's talk about the 70% of Australians who don't believe he will deliver on this promise to reduce power bills by $275 a year. I'm surprised it's so low. Who in their right mind thinks he can deliver that sort of savings by switching to renewables? Yeah, well, I suspect that the 30% who say he will achieve it are either sort of wild wide-eyed green ideologues or else they're rusted on Labour people who say Albanese right or wrong, I'm, I'm on his side. Uh, but yeah, I mean, again, I, I think this has just fallen totally flat. It, it is un going to be, I'm sure you'd agree with this, his first broken promise and people know that already. So that, that is a big, a big problem for him. He's not been able to deliver what he promised. Even actually we polled this same question uh, back in December uh, last year, right, when they first announced this. And even then, I think the figure was uh, less than 60% uh, or 56% said he couldn't deliver this promise back then. And it's increased now to 70%. So, yeah, I, I think yeah, he's going to have to wear this one. He was so confident about it. They mentioned it at least eight times before the election. Since the election, no mention of the $275 hasn't passed his lips. Well, if renewables were so cheap, wouldn't Europeans be solving their <laughs> shortages by installing windmills and solar panels now? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But you can see the reality is biting in Europe. I mean, they've had massive investment in wind and solar in Europe. Not, not as large, actually, per capita as we have here. We've gone even more over the top, particularly with rooftop solar than any other country in the world per capita. But they're realising there that this isn't going to cut it, you know, relying on, you know, gas sort of sneakily imported from Russia to run their baseload power it becomes a problem when you have an issue with Russia. That's where they're at right now. And, you know, the German government is, is telling people how to go around to forage for firewood. I mean, this is, this is like the 18th century, not, not the 21st century, right? It's just crazy stuff. Well, clear, let's talk about the Job Summit. Clearly, the Job Summit is being held so the government can reveal a suite of policies they knew they couldn't publish during the election campaign. Do you think this will shift the debate away from power bills? Well, I don't think so for most people. I mean, power bills coming through the letterboxes is a thing that actually keeps them awake at night, along with... You know, I mean, don't underestimate the, the rising interest rates and the effect that has on what people are going to pay out every week on their mortgage. So those are actually at the front of mind for, I think, most people right now. And you can forgive give, give them if they're not been paying attention to the detail in this, this very tedious job summit. But it's quite clear, as you say, that, that this was a stitch up from the start. I mean, I thought at the start, well, why does Albanese need to hold a summit to find out what people think? before he can govern. Uh, you, know, you know what happened with Kevin Rudd, he set up the 2020 summit, which was clearly a sort of conclave of the clueless, right? Rudd didn't have an idea what he wanted to do. Let's get together, let's all have some ideas. 
OK, that seemed bad enough. But I think what Albanese has done is far worse. Actually, he did have an idea of what he wanted to do in government. He wasn't prepared to tell the voters beforehand. He ran that this, this, this sort of uh, low-target uh, strategy. You know, he wasn't going to actually tell us, oh, well, let's have a job summit and then we can decide. And so he's actually got a very fixed agenda. It's a very old-fashioned pro-Labour, pro-union pro agenda that he's fighting out to bring the, the, the push the pendulum much back further in favour of the unions. That's what he was going to do all along. And what he's done is call some business leaders along just to give it some credibility. But I think it's quite clear. I mean, you would have seen, uh, you know, today, uh, Tony Burke comes out with his plan, which is clearly cooked up long in advance and, you know, whatever statement everybody has to agree to and sign at the end would have been done weeks, if not months ago. Yeah, the speed with which Tony Burke brought those those points out this morning, I mean, the, the, the summit had barely been running for a couple of hours before he'd reached these conclusions. I mean, he's, they're shameless the way that they've, that they've revealed that they've gone into this with a pre, preconceived plan. But you know, who else was there, Nick? It was the, the super funds, the major industry super funds. And I imagine that Jim Chalmers has, has taken them to one side during the summit and said, listen, you know, I'm going to tell you which projects you're going to invest in. Yeah. And, uh, and um, you know, they'll all be clean and green and, and they'll, they'll make us all look good because they will be uh, infrastructure projects and it'll be good PR for everyone. But the people who, who miss out are the people whose money it is. That's right. I mean, when you, when you invest in these long-term projects, you can do it with super funds, the money from super funds, that has been deposited by young people who are at the start of their careers because the security on that money is rolled gold. It's locked up for decades. Now, if I was one of those young people investing in a super fund now, just starting out in my career, and being forced to invest money in government-favoured green schemes, which is what Chalmers wants them to do, Mate, I'd be sweating about whether I'd ever see that money again, wouldn't you? Yeah. Look, Fred, I don't know about young people. I mean, you and I. I mean, we, we both of us foolishly chose careers in journalism, which uh, me, means we, we earn very little in our, in our careers. But we do at least put some aside into super. And we need that money. That's going to help us in retirement. That is our money. And now what... what Chalmers is suggesting is the government will say where that money is invested. So having run out of money from the taxpayer, because clearly they even they realise that, you know, heading towards a trillion dollars worth of debt is not a good thing. We can't tax more or borrow more if we can help it. They're now raiding our super funds. That's essentially what they're doing. They have grand schemes. Some of them may be half good. Some of them may be very bad for infrastructure and greening the economy and all this. How are you going to fund it? Ah, oh, we'll just dip into your super fund, Fred. How do you feel about that? And, and on top of that, we'll increase the, the guaranteed amount that you have to put away in super. It's... Yeah, yeah, so that, so that we've got more to raid in the future. Yeah, you know? <laughs> socialism by stealth, I'd exactly. call it. Yeah. Now let's talk to let's talk from uh, from the, the the secular world of work and industrial relations to the decline of Christianity. You've got a, you've got an invoice uh, an interview tomorrow night with Stephen Chavura. Tell us all about it. Oh, Stephen Chavura, he's a young uh, well, young to me, but anyway, very smart thinker, uh, a, a lecturer in European and Australian history 
so I run past him this idea. OK, so the census, uh, the 2021 census has revealed that now Christians are in a minority for the first time ever since the census was taken and an oppressed minority at that, as you know. I mean, they, they're not they, they, they're not subject. They don't get the benefit of the human rights laws that say, you know, people with a, of a, a minority uh, ethnic or or sexual or whatever disposition get. None of that applies to Christians. They are an oppressed minority. But does that mean, this is a crucial question, does that mean that we're becoming less religious? Or does it mean we've just simply shifted to a new gospel, the gospel of woke? And I think, um, and you've uh, written and spoken on this uh, quite well, that it, 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 this new woke ideology does seem very much like a new faith with a new idea of how we should behave to one another, what makes a good life, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so I'd, su I'd suggest that it, it's actually pre-Christian, that it's, that there's, a, there's an element of, of, of paganism to it. Well, I know not paganism isn't pre-Christian, but, you know, the worship of the earth and all that sort of stuff. I mean, yeah. there's nothing intellectual about it. It's, 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 a, it's a moral code. But it's not very sophisticated, is it? Well, it's a godless moral code, right? They hate the idea of a god. So it is, as you say, a, a, a pre-Christian religion. It's much like the, the way it, Aboriginal uh, culture was pre-settlement. You know, they had a very strong religious belief, but they didn't have God as part of that. So, um, yeah, I think that's, there's a good argument that that's where they've returned. But certainly if you look at what a religion does, I mean, a religion essentially gives us all values and principles on which we can all agree. We don't have to argue over it, right? It, you know, it's a good thing to help your neighbour. You know, it's a good thing to treat everybody as equal. That those are just good things and that's what our society is founded on. So this is just simply an attempt to give you a different moral code which says it's a good thing uh, to recycle your lunchbox. You know, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing not to use plastic straws. I, I think there's a, there's a strong argument that in a sociological sense, at least, it is a religion. It is yeah, a religion. Yeah, well, in Europe, it's a good thing not to turn on your heaters this winter. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Cater, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Battleground, which you can see on ADH TV at 8 p.m. on Fridays. Now, before I go, you heard Nick Cater talk about woke being the new religion in the West. He's right, but that's just the start of it. The worshippers in the sacred church of wokeness are more devout than Mother Teresa and more judgmental than a bearded gentleman boarding a one-way flight to paradise on a plane full of infidels. Unlike most Christians, they never take a break from their devotion. Everything they eat, everywhere they go, and even every word they utter is churned through the meat grinder of their religious affiliations. It must be utterly exhausting. Misgender a transgendered, non-binary, furry friend, and you could be accused of bigotry and cancelled from social media, which is where most woke people hang out. Fail to sort your chai tea bags into the correct recycling bin, and you could be accused of destabling the delicate environmental balance and killing off generations of unborn marsupials on the other side of the planet. Or forget to leave the house with your yoga mat, and your friends will call you a colonial oppressor of traditional cultures. But the reward for all this effort is a level of sanctimony that until now was only ever felt by the most deified royalty and clergy. The Queen of Wokeness herself, Meghan Markle, 
put on a fine performance of it this week. It was a masterclass that even the newest members of the woke congregation can emulate if they like. Just call everyone else racist and hey presto, the moral high ground is all yours. It must be tempting, especially to the poor wretches who have had the misfortune of being brainwashed by our education system lately. Yep, it all comes back to education and God. I'll have more to say about the education system next week. Well, that's all from me for this week. Thank you so much for your company. I'll see you at nine o'clock next Monday.